office mate had thought to call me, he had become clearly alarmed. She often goes off on her own tangents, he had said, but she's never disappeared for this long before, and never when she had meetings already set with long-term clients. Something's not right. How did you know to call me, I asked. He responded by describing part of a letter, found in Charlene's office, that I had written to her months earlier chronicling my experiences in Peru. With it, he told me, was a scribbled note that contained my name and telephone number. I'm calling everyone I know who's associated with her, he added. So far, no one seems to know a thing. I was hoping you had heard from her. Sorry, I told him. I haven't talked to her in four months. Even as I had said the words, I couldn't believe it had been that long. Soon after receiving my letter, Charlene had telephoned and left a long message on my answering machine, voicing her excitement about the insights and commenting on the speed with which knowledge of them seemed to be spreading. I remembered listening to Charlene's message several times, but I had put off calling her back. I knew at the time that speaking with her would put me in the position of having to recall and explain the details of the manuscript, and I told myself I needed more time to think, to digest what had occurred. The truth, of course, was that parts of the prophecy still eluded me. Certainly I had retained the ability to connect with the spiritual energy within, a great comfort to me considering that everything had fallen through with Marjorie, and I was now spending large amounts of time alone and I was more aware than ever of intuitive thoughts and dreams and the luminosity of a room or landscape. Yet at the same time, the sporadic nature of the coincidences had become a problem. I would fill up with energy, for instance, discerning the question foremost in my life, and would usually perceive a clear hunch about what to do or where to go to pursue the answer. Yet, after acting accordingly, too often nothing of importance would occur. I would find no message, no coincidence. Such failure had not soured me on the process, but I had realized something was missing when it came to living the insights long term. In Peru, I had been proceeding on momentum, often acting spontaneously with a kind of faith born out of desperation. When I arrived back home, though, dealing again with my normal environment, often surrounded by outright skeptics, I seemed to lose the keen expectation or firm belief that my hunches were really going to lead somewhere. Apparently there was some vital part of the knowledge I had forgotten, or perhaps not yet discovered. I'm just not sure what to do next, Charlene's associate had pressed. She has a sister, I think, somewhere in New York. You don't know how to contact her, do you? Or anyone else who might know where she is? I'm sorry, I said, I don't. Charlene and I are actually rekindling an old friendship. I don't remember any relatives, and I don't know who her friends are now. Well, I think I'm going to file a police report unless you have a better idea. No, I, I think that would be wise. Are there any other leads? Only a drawing of some kind. Could be a description of a place. It's hard to tell. Later, he faxed me the entire note he had found in Charlene's office, including the crude sketch of intersecting lines and numbers with vague marks in the margins. And as I had sat in my study comparing the drawing to the road numbers in an atlas of the South, I had found what I suspected to be the actual location. Afterwards, I had experienced a vivid image of Charlene in my mind, the same image I perceived in Peru when told of the existence of a tenth insight. Was her disappearance somehow connected to the manuscript? A wisp of wind touched my face, and I again studied the view below. 
Far to the left, at the western edge of the valley, I could make out a row of rooftops. That had to be the town Charlene had indicated on the map. Stuffing the paper into my vest pocket, I made my way back to the road and climbed into the Pathfinder. The town itself was small, population 2,000 according to the sign beside the first and only stoplight. Most of the commercial buildings lined just one street running along the edge of the stream. I drove through the light, spotted a motel near the entrance to the National Forest, and pulled into a parking space facing an adjacent restaurant and pub. Several people were entering the door, including a tall man with a dark complexion and jet black hair, carrying a large pack. He glanced back at me, and we momentarily made eye contact. I got out and locked the car, then decided on a hunch to walk through the restaurant before checking into the motel. Inside, the tables were nearly empty, just a few hikers at the bar and some of the people who had entered ahead of me in a booth. Most were oblivious to my gaze, but as I continued to survey the room, I again met eyes with the tall man I had seen before. He was walking out a back exit. I followed him through the exit. He was dressed in jeans, a western shirt and boots, and appeared to be about fifty years old. Behind him, the late afternoon sun cast long shadows among the tall trees and grass, and fifty yards away, the stream flowed by, beginning its journey into the valley. He smiled half-heartedly and looked up at me. Another pilgrim? he asked. I'm looking for a friend, I said. I had a hunch that you could help me. He nodded, studying the outlines of my body very carefully. He introduced himself as David Lone Eagle, explaining, as though it was something I might need to know, that he was a direct descendant of...